People tell me all the time, are you happy? Do you truly like what you do? What I tell people is the truth. If you're not happy in automotive, you know, we're really in the people business. And if you can't find a place where you feel like you belong and can make a difference, I think that's your problem. And if you like people, it's terrific. What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Let's get into today's episode. Brett Morgan is CEO of Morgan Auto Group, the second largest private car dealership group in the country, consisting of 66 dealerships. To put it bluntly, this was one of the most interesting conversations I've had on the CDG podcast. We discussed acquiring 60 dealerships in under seven years, dealership profitability, how Brett compensates his management team, raising kids into generational wealth, paying over $200 million for a single Toyota dealership, why he'll only drive one type of vehicle, his blunt message to the CEO of Ford, Jim Farley, the future and challenges with EVs, and truthfully, so, so much more. I recommend you listen very closely because Brett drops lots of gems. But before we dive into the show, theft is plaguing dealerships nationwide, losing car keys is an unneeded cost, and searching for keys can lead to bottlenecks in the sales process. Keeper Systems has the solution for dealers. The Keeper MX is the number one key control solution in the auto industry, handling millions of transactions per day. It features a 16-gauge steel cabinet with a built-in camera and a puck lock for additional safety, along with many other features so that dealers can know who took a key, when, and why. Keeper Systems has been in the auto industry for over 40 years and is at over 12,000 dealerships, offering exclusive key control for 6 out of 10 biggest automotive groups in the world. They have a wide range of products that fit the needs of franchise dealers, independent dealers, and even the smallest pre-owned lots. New customers can take advantage of my partnership with Keeper Systems right now to receive an exclusive discount. All you need to do is visit KeeperSystems.com, click on the Car Dealership Guy link, and fill out the form to receive 25% off your first key machine purchase. Or if you prefer to call, just mention Car Dealership Guy to receive your discount. KeeperSystems.com, K-E-Y-P-E-R Systems.com. Wasted data is a serious issue in automotive, but data is the key to driving revenues, which means some dealers out there are just ignoring a gold mine that is staring them in the face. Let's face it, most dealerships are completely overrun with data silos. None of the data sources are integrated with each other, leaving the data as a jumbled mess instead of a clean set that could be turning into cash. Fullpath solves this by gathering, cleaning, and sorting your data into one platform so you can use it to speak to your customers' needs with killer AI-powered marketing campaigns. My friends over at Fullpath are breaking barriers, and I'm really excited to have them as a partner of the podcast. I believe in their product and, more importantly, in their mission to help dealers grow. Fullpath can help you turn your data into dollars. Find them at fullpath.com. Brett Morgan on the CDG podcast. Brett, how are you? Uh, car dealership guy, it's great to, uh, great to see you. Great to be here with you. Just a conversation we had over the last you know, couple of minutes, man, I wish I was part of this podcast, but we'll get to a lot of juicy stuff. So I'm, I'm pumped for this. Before we get started, give us, give us your background. I thought Morgan Auto Group, this colossal like behemoth, for lack of a better term, was your, your family's first act. But I came to discover doing my research, it's actually a second or maybe a fifth or sixth or whatever act. And I saw Tires Plus and I had no idea that was a creation of the Morgan family. So we'd love to hear about that and kind of your family's start in the business world. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's great. And I would, I would say this, it really feels like Morgan Automotive from the the narrative or my, my father's perspective, Larry Morgan, it's really his third entrepreneurial venture. His first was a family business with another family. So that was Merchants Tire and Auto Service Centers out of the Mid-Atlantic. So I kind of grew up the, you know, not the son of a car dealer, but the son of somebody in the independent tire and auto service space. And he helped grow that 
that that family business for the merchants from like I think three retail to 166. So my, that was my childhood. Um, and at the age of around 11, I think it was like 91 or 92. Um, you know, the family had kind of a shake up. There had been some marriages, some new blood had come into the the family, uh, and he was terminated. And and it was kind of a, a crazy memory for me as a young guy because it's like. I think my dad tells the story where I told, you know, one of my friends, his father had gotten laid off and I was like, that's okay. You know, my dad got laid off too. And I, it, my dad <laughs> heard me say this and he was, you know, he was kind of laughing about it um, at the time until this day. But that was a big springboard for him to think about entrepreneurship and, and being in his own, his own deal. So wait, did you guys have any entrepreneurial genes in the family or was Morgan Auto Group and Tires Plus, you know, sort of sort of, uh, you know, an outcome from building and, you know, having a growing appetite to have a bigger impact and, you know, get bigger? Yeah, great question. I mean, you know, it's probably a better question for my my father. He's always been in business, always wanted to be in business, um, you know, lives, eats, drinks, breathes the entrepreneurial dream, kind of the American dream, if you will. It's very much, you know, his story is, you know, common tale of some of these legendary figures that walk around the business landscape today. Um, but kind of going back to that time in 92, when he was, when he was terminated, um, he, he reconnected with an old mentor of his from Firestone, a guy named Don Olson, who had, I think, you know, call it 25, 30 retail, uh, shops out of the Clearwater, Florida area, which is kind of a part of what I call the tri-city area here in Tampa, Tampa Bay, St. Pete, Clearwater. And, you know, he came down and was going to be an investor and that turned out into, he, you know, borrowed borrowed the capital and bought that business uh, when I was when I was 12 years old. What would you say from your perspective, and before we get in deeper into your story, like what keeps your father motivated at this point? From what I understand, he's still involved in the business, very involved. And I, I'm not sure exactly his age and, you know, it's kind of stage in life, but what keeps him motivated at this point? The reality is he, I think, gets highly motivated from watching other people be able to accomplish more in their life than they ever had been able to previously or ever been able to imagine. So I think for him, a large part of that drive is watching other people uh, grow and succeed. And, you know, this is, you know, certainly financially, but also in their, their means to be able to lead others. Have you guys ever discussed an exit strategy or like succession? Like, what does that look like for the family? Again, you're, you're operating the second largest private car dealer group in the country. Correct me if I'm wrong. This isn't a mom and pop shop on the side on the side of the street. So, I mean, wh what can you share on that? You know, when you run something this big, how do you how do you think about like kind of generational wealth and passing that on and keeping the legacy going? Yeah, it's you know, it's it's funny, it's fascinating because at some point, you know, dad's story is going to kind of meet my story, and you know, the the reality of life is there's some you know probably some jokes in the car business that by the third generation it's time to sell, right? And there's reasons for that. You know, you see, and I think even one of your past guests, you know, kind of touched on those reasons why, why generational businesses, you know, trade hands, even though they are, you know, tremendously, you know, cash generating, uh, incredible generational, you know, growth opportunities, why people get out of the, the car business. We were very fortunate. So, you know, Don Olson, that business became Tires Plus. The Tires Plus name came through an acquisition from a Minnesota, Minneapolis based company owned by a guy named Tom Gigax. And then, you know, Larry took that name and ran with it with his growing operation. He grew Don Ol Olson Tire from, you know, 30 retail or whatever it was to 650 under the Tires Plus, 
you know, banner. And some of that was through acquisition. And a lot of that was fresh brick and mortar builds too in, in growing markets. So it was a little bit of both. And I think a real education form that served, that has served Morgan well. By this point, uh, how many years have you been CEO of Morgan Auto Group? So that move, that transition was 2016, which was a pretty- Okay. So you've been CEO for, you know, say seven plus years. You've acquired yeah. countless stores under yourself. The group has grown and you've done incredible. And we'll get into the details shortly. Yeah. I'm trying to really think about the psychology of, you know, you growing up in, you know, under your dad's businesses and, you know, getting some involvement. Was there a period where you felt like um, you sort of had this chip on your shoulder, like, oh, I'm like, you know, I'm like one of those sons in the business that kind of, you know, people think I got into it through my dad. Yes. Yeah, so, and, and I'll talk about that. So the, the industry has terminology for that and it's called PhD. Papa has a dealership. And I, I never, I, I know, I know a different term, but I don't, okay. I don't think it's I don't know if I, car dealership guy appropriate. <laughs> well, it, and it's funny because I never heard that term. So, you know, the, the opportunity to kind of get in the car business with dad, I, out of college, I worked for Clear Channel, which is now, of course, iHeart. I was on the programming side. I, which by the way, that blew me away that you've been in media. So I had no idea. Yeah. I, I just, I loved it. I've got a creative side to me. Um, I was on the programming side. I was not on the sales side. Um, I, you know, did three years at Clear Channel Richmond or two and a half years, um, around some fascinating times, you know, uh, SS Cole bombing, uh, DC sniper, nine 11. I mean, I was there for some really fascinating big stuff. Yeah, yeah. Some good stuff. And then, uh, you know, dad had sold, Larry had sold tires plus and he tried to retire and he went and like, you know, hit golf balls for a few weeks and noticed his game wasn't improving. And he was just like. He's just not a man to sit still. And a, a friend of his named Ed Leibowitz was on a, a local, back then it was SunTrust, now Truist Bank, uh, Florida board with him. And Ed was, I think, you know, he had married into the Brayman family. And I don't know if you know who Norman Brayman is, but huge you yeah. know, heritage South Florida dealer, former owner of the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, you know, talk about another great story in automotive. Um, so anyway, Ed, and his son-in-law, a guy named Jason Hewn, were looking to buy some car stores. They'd been involved in a few dealerships locally. Ended up buying a Honda Volkswagen store in Tampa. And, you know, dad was a silent minority partner. And he talked to me, you know, hey, it's good money-making opportunity. It's an interesting business. It's, uh, it's got some, you know, some maybe a little bit more excitement than the traditional, you know, tire and auto service, you know, space. And maybe you should come down and sell cars and, you know, figure it out. I got to, you know, frankly, uh, you know, I, I think I came down to Florida and put the car back on the auto train and got it back to Richmond and the, the, the new car smell and glue of the Passat, I think it got to my head because in three weeks I was like, I'm coming down to Tampa, I'm selling cars. So my college roommate who played basketball at Richmond, I recruited him and we came down a couple months later and started selling cars at the SpeedW Honda store. So that was the foray into the dealership world, right? Yeah. So going back to that chip on the shoulder, right? Like, did you have those moments? People are like, oh, this guy's won the sperm lottery. Yeah. Early on, <laughs> I could kind of see it, see it. But now, did I have a chip on my shoulder? Yes. It, it turned into maybe a problem. So yeah, it, it, it became, I'll, I'll never forget my, one of my earliest mentors in this business. And this was at our next store, uh, the second store I worked in. Just one day he looked at me and goes, look, kid, I get it. You'll mop the floor. You know, you'll sell the tires and put them on, you know, you'll, you'll stay here till midnight at night. Like, stop, like, stop. Like, let's, let's talk about how we can work smarter. 
Let's talk about where you're going. Um, and, and this constant need to prove yourself is doing you a disservice. Do you think as a father, do you think you would follow the same type of path that you did with your dad? And, you know, would you want your, your daughter, your, your, any future children, would you want them to get into the business to work from a young age? I think, you know, I've had to reconcile that I've had other, you know, opportunities that other people had, didn't have, even if it's working in a tire warehouse. So, yeah, I think, you know, Publix isn't going to hire a 12 year old, whether I like it or not. Right. They're just not. So I think I don't regret being a part of the family business, even in that, you know, in that respect going back to the age of 12, I think work ethic is important. And I think if you're an entrepreneur and you have a vehicle to expose someone to that existence, I think it's extremely healthy. So I, now what I probably wouldn't do is be having conversations with a 15 year old or my daughter hypothetically someday about, yeah, this is all going to be yours someday. And, you know, it's just, (laughs) it's too much, it's, it's too much pressure. You know, I loved Alan's story on your podcast about the what the guy became like a jazz promoter after his dad sold the business. You know, yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. everyone everyone secretly wants to be a rock star anyway. People tell me all the time, "Are you happy? Do you you know do you do you truly like what you do?" And what I tell people is the truth: if you're not happy in automotive, there is such a variety of you know we're really in the people business, but there are so many angles, and this it's a really complex, simple business. And if you can't find a place where you feel like you belong and can make a difference, I think that's your problem. That doesn't mean I've loved every job I've ever had in this business, but I, I just think it's great. And I, you know, I've kind of relished a lot of the opportunities I've had in it, but it's just fascinating. And if you like people, it's terrific. What was the journey like leading up to being, becoming CEO of the company? Tell me about that. Yeah. So my career path, automotive specific. So I, I don't discount, you know, the little time I spent as a, you know, writing service in an independent sire, tire and, and service shop, because that, that was a good experience. And I think relative to a, a dealership experience. So, you know, I sold cars for two, two and a half years. I met an incredible guy named Ross Bauer. He's still in our industry, but on the vendor side now, he was my general sales manager and he kind of wrote my career plan. And I think it's a pretty common one that a lot of dealerships, at least at the time, had kind of adhered to. So I started in sales, then I became a floor manager, went from floor manager to an internet director. And obviously back in, you know, whenever that was 2005, that meant something a little different than what it does today, uh, just because e-com has become a, you know, so much more important part of our business. Uh, I rolled out of that experience into F&I, finance, then into used car management. So, and I think his thinking was you need that finance understanding as far as, you know, how to get deals bought, subprime, et cetera, to, to be able to work, uh, the desk of a used car department. And then I went to used cars and then, uh, we had acquired, I think our third and fourth store in our CFO, who was a good old Georgia boy. Russell Rouse calls me one day and he goes, I can't get your daddy's attention. But this, this dealership we just bought eight months ago is drowning in inventory. And somebody, if somebody don't wake up, it's going to drown all of us. So I went up and, and talked to Russell. And look, there's parts of the business that, that Larry Morgan was learning what I was learning. It was really exciting times. I mean, 20, the 20 group experience was very formidable to us understanding the, the car business. And I even, haven't even really gotten into how that happened. But anyway, 
I ended up going to Gainesville, Florida. We had bought a Pontiac Buick GMC store and a Honda store to kind of do a health check. And it was a disaster. Uh, I think we'd owned the store for a year. There were cars, there were used cars that were a year old. There was a used, there was used cars that were nine months old, still had uh, G, you know, GMAX smart auction stickers on them. Hadn't been reconned. You know, new car inventory out a year, you know, so, you know many units out a year and a half. Uh, CIT, contracts and transit, um, receivables issues on wholesales, contracts and transit out 90 days. It was a dumpster fire. And we bought, <laughs> we bought this Pontiac store because it came, you know, the Honda store was really the, the, ad, the, pearl, the pearl in that deal. And we'd left the, the operator who was there previously in the Pontiac store. And we wondered when we bought it, why the previous dealer principal had his office in the messy old dilapidated Pontiac store and not the nice new Honda store down the street. Well, there was your answer. You know, he needed that oversight. The, the, the other guy was a retailer, but he wasn't a general manager. And I ended up going there for like what I thought would be a couple of weekends. And I left Gainesville three and a half years later. Wow. And that was, and what did you do? You took, you took over as GM at the time? I initially took over as GSM. I kind of had some influence over who the GM was and then the recession hit. So I'd, I'd been there for a short time and then kind of, you know, 08, 09 was happening. I think any person that you speak with that has been successful in the car business and, and honestly, any business that requires, you know, some creativity and whatnot, but I've had a very similar experience where you sort of get thrown into situations and you have to be a chameleon. That's what I call it. You know, you kind of have to figure it out. And those are the people that are scrappy, that are able to kind of mold to the situations. And, you know, hey, guess what? This store needs your help. And like you said, three and a half years later, you're there. You're still there. Um, or whatever it may be, this department, that, you know, that, that department, it's, that's the people that seem to be elevated most uh, in this business from what I've seen. And also from my experience, that was what brought a lot of value, being able to kind of put out those fires, but then build on top of that and prove yourself in a new department and just be a problem solver. And it, yeah, it gave me confidence, you know, so ultimately it's funny. I joke that I knew my dad loved me because when I first asked him if I could take over the store, because they were going to fire the GM and I was going to come back to Tampa. And I thought about it all night and, um, you know, we were still kind of in the thick of the recession and I called my dad the next day. I said, let me have it. And I, I joke that I really knew my dad loved me because his answer was, let me think about it. And he really did. And I think the store had lost year to date $476,000. And we made maybe two eighty, two ninety the following year or something. What, what year was this? Actually, you know what? It was a $1.2 million turnaround. So this was, you know, 2010, I think. So it was a $1.2 million turnaround. So I think the store had lost something like 800, you know, call it 800 grand and we made 400 the next year. And man, it was a grind. You know, we, we, that, that was uh, Pontiac, obviously, you know, went away at that time, cash for clunkers, but that was our inexpensive new car to retail. So our, you, you know, our new car cost of goods sold, our uh, cost of sale went to like 39 grand overnight between the GMC truck product and, you know, Buick Enclaves. And we were basically infinity dealers and, you know, heavily subprime Gainesville, Florida. I mean, it's a college town. They don't, they don't want to drive, you know, g6s and um it was just a grind and you know gm was was kind of trying to retool the buick lineup to get some lower cost uh you know vehicles into that new car side and you, you can you know when you're selling 50 new cars a month 
you know, in that market doing, you know, heavy subprime, you're not trading for a lot of nice things. So, you know, we were trying to sell two to, you know, two to one used to new. And I'd say 95% of our inventory was purchased car. And you just, you know, it, you live this existence. So I don't need to tell you, you know, low margins on the used car side and cry over a deal. You know, you've got it and you've got a Chevy dealer across the street who sells the same products your GMC, you know, your GMC does. So it's even for a single point market, it came with some disadvantages in that store. What year was that? And but, then go ahead. Yeah, that was 2010. And then how, I, how many stores did you have then? How many stores did you guys have then? 2010? Two, 2010, probably five or six. Got it. And today you are at 66? 66. Got it. What are you doing nowadays? How many cars are you selling per year when you versus used? Now? Okay, so you know we I think last year we did one hundred thirty seven thousand total. This year I think we're trending like one hundred sixty five thousand, something along those lines, new and used total. What's the revenue on that? So like a trailing twelve months, I can remember. So like at the end of Q one was like eight point four billion, and we're we're going to be knocking on the door of of nine billion in revenue. Nine billion in revenue, and then what's the net margin on that? I think in terms of EBITDA, you know. Nine okay, half, sure, EBITDA. Yeah, nine and a half percent EBITDA margin. You know, we mm-hmm. we stack ourselves next to the publics. You know, we look at all their numbers. Um, yeah, we're we're on top of most. You know, certainly right in the thick from a, a total net margin perspective, and we do things a little differently than they do. So, so yeah, w- w- what drives that? I mean, why why are you on top of most? And like, give me the benchmarks. Go ahead. You said you do things differently. I'm curious. Well, I, I say it. we do. I, we're just built a little differently, right? You have that auto nation model and it was, you know, even Alan discussed it on a, a couple of pods ago with you, you know, which, you know, Hey, you know, we've got this corporate support team or this management company support. We're going to go get a GM and he's not responsible truly for everything. So we're going to pay him less. And we don't, you know, we pay, we pay top dollar at every position. Um, even COVID post COVID, you know, I, I remember sitting, you know, on a rewards trip in Bologna, Italy with one of the executives from one of the publics. And he was bragging about putting in these salary caps on his GMs. Well, they didn't make all that money. Like, you know, it's, I'm like, what does that budgeting for the next year look like? You're trying to raise the bar or get the guy to look at it, you know, a different level of achievement, but you've put in, you know, you basically put a restrictor plate on them. Um, good, bad, and indifferent. We feel differently. Um, we're going to be at the, you know, the, uttermost you know top rankings of of you know competition on on pay plans we're very decentralized that doesn't that's, mean and that's the point i was just going to get at you it sounds yeah. like you're very you run a very decentralized model which is good and bad you know the great part is why we do it we want our leaders and we have some minority partners too we want mm-hmm. them to feel completely empowered to the environment that they're inside of we want them to feel like they're partners even when they're not even when they don't have skin in the game. And we want them to feel like their hands are on all the levers that can, you know, participate in success. And we take anything that we do from a centralized management company level, we don't take lightly. Because if it adds expense in the store, that's going to lessen our ability to hold those operators accountable. You know, I mean, you walk into some, even, you know, single point small family dealerships, and you just, you've talked to the operator and he's going, you know, I've got these, you know, miscellaneous fees, these management fees. I'm paying for the jet. I'm paying for the, you know, the tickets of the game. I'm, I'm paying for this. I can't control my app, my advertising. They own their own advertising company. I'm not allowed to choose this. I'm not allowed to do that. And at the end of the day, you, you basically got a desk manager running a car store sometimes. Um, and we feel very differently. We've done a lot to protect that. Now, having said that, 
as business evolves, our guys have needed our support and our help. And we realized a long time ago that being a GM is more than really any one person can accomplish. So we did start to build kind of supplemental, you know, help, not just supervision. We have regional platform managers. We have what we call used car regional directors. We have what we call e-commerce directors that help facilitate the operations at the store level. We have a team of fixed operations, kind of consultants that work with our service managers and our We've got, you know, technician recruiters. We've got two teammates that kind of facilitate the the budgeting of our marketing spend in each store. And, you know, and most of these folks have 12 to 15 stores each. In the case of our marketing team, I mean, they're split down the middle. They've got 33 stores a piece. It's a lot. We ask a mm-hmm. lot of our people. We pay them very well. And, uh, but it does give that. Let's pay them well. What does an average GM make? Don't, I don't want to go like too high, too low. Just like average, you know, you have 66 stores. Right. What does that look like? Well, let's do the math. So last, tra- you know, trailing 12 months, you know, at the end of Q1, I think our net profit called $800 million, right? Mm-hmm. Divide that by 66. I'm not that good. <laughs> what we got? We got 12, let's just say 12, roughly. Right. So, yeah, you know, yeah. So, and, and we pay our guys kind of the industry standard. And we, you know, look, there might be some allowances here and there, but you know, it's, it's, so it's t- 10, gra- 10 grand a month in salary and 10% of the net. Got it. So 12, let's say roughly 12 million a store, 10% and a, and a small salary. We have a lot of people who make a lot of money. I'm sure you do. One thing that comes to mind is being a decentralized model. I mean, you know, on a much smaller scale than you, but I've, I've tested, you know, multiple models throughout the years and just, you know with different types of uh, autonomy and you know, independence versus kind of corporate support. It seems like, how, how do you even do it, right? And what at your scale, be, like how do you run a decentralized model at such a scale without you know, having these uh, you know, single points of failure or other things just kind of break down? I mean, there's a reason people go to a decentralized model, right? It's for you know, processes, having you know, systems, things that are sort of ingrained and make it easier to manage and scale um, and have more predictability. But how do you do it and again, I'm sure it comes down to the people, but like how it's, Explain no, it's, it's all people. And it, and again, it's, you know, we give people enough support where if they don't know the answer or they don't have that specific process or they don't, you know what I mean? Um, it's there, there's a playbook there for our operators, but if he wants to run a different system or run a, you know, in a different manner, we don't universally, you know, support like. I, I can think, and again, maybe this is more relevant 15 years ago than today, but like an up system, you know, there's software that will, you know, rotate consumers amongst your, your sales floor. We've never mandated anything like that. If somebody wants to run, you know, have an internal BDC, they can have an internal BDC. As long as we approve the budget and it works within our confines and the stores mm-hmm. succeeding on, we've kind of have four pillars, right? So low turnover. Right. So we're, we're people, animals, we manage our turnover. You know, people don't follow rules, they follow leaders. So, you know, turnover is a direct reflection of that, that leader's ability. If the stores are, are, uh, you know, sales efficient, if their CSI is in good standing with the manufacturer. And then lastly, if they're on budget. And, you know, our budget's kind of our Bible. And that's gotten really complicated in kind of the post COVID days. But we start in late November building out templates and we have, you know, great accounting team in the peripheral and an incredible kind of what I call chief financial analyst. And then a few people under our COO and then our entire executive team gets together, works with these operators 
and we bang out this year it'll be 66 budgets in about wow. two weeks and i mean we go from eight in the morning to so eight you're and looking nine. for yeah and so as a gm you're looking for you want me to have low turnover you want me to have a strong customer service index rating right for the audience mm-hmm. that's listening and you want to yeah. pretty much deliver a good customer service and get you know good ratings from the customers and then you want it to hit budget right do any of these incentivize bad behavior for example right like when i think about low turnover is is anyone throwing money at the problem maybe exceeding budget to reduce sure. turnover sure like, always yeah. always breach you know breach action there's an, an my, equal and opposite my, reaction my brain is right away thinking about how can the system be gamed <laughs> no well you well, and you're not wrong and you probably think like our, our you should be one of our operators you know it's funny years ago um, I, I can remember, we're just very, so we're very transparent. So every one of yeah. our operators can see every single other one of our operators' financial statements. I mean, it's all right there for it. You know, if you're part of our organization, That's the good. leadership, That's you good. see it all. Um, and the same thing from a traffic management perspective. So you can, you know, you can tell me what, you know, if you're sitting in Naples, Florida, you know what our big Honda store, our two big Honda stores in Tampa are closing on their e-com traffic. And on four lead submissions, you you know all that information. And it's funny because when we first started to kind of promote and, you know, community, you know, in the past, you could just go to the CRM and get that data for your store. But when we started kind of holding it up to the light for everyone to see, man, we had people right and left trying to game the system. And they would take in, you know, quality leads and try to reclassify them to get them out of their account. To raise their close rate. So look, I mean, always, you're always going to get that. And you have to be yeah. really careful on what drum you're banging on. Because uh, if it has, you know, a knee jerk reaction that can negatively affect that customer experience, you know, profitability can't be your God uh, or, or your guide, you know, there or all the time. No, I, I, I love that. I mean, this is the, this is that nitty gritty of dealing, right? With, uh, with people yeah. and incentivizing management. And I love the transparency. I think that's huge. Um, especially, you know, in this business, you know, you have a lot of many dealerships that don't operate like that. And so it's really great that you, you know, you just show that, show that between the, the operators and, you know, you create that competition, but of course, you know, there could be other side effects. Tell me another thing uh, where we think about, you know, getting to 66 stores, what do you look for in an acquisition? I mean, you guys have grown like a weed. It's been super impressive. You've remained private. I want to talk about how you funded everything as well. Yeah. But what do you look for in an acquisition? Like what are the kind of core pillars you're looking for? Are you looking for value add? Are you looking just to add cash flow? What is it for you? Yeah. So look, they all they all have to stand on their own. And what I mean by that is I think if you get too formulaic, if it has to meet a particular criterion or, or a specific formula, I think that can get you into trouble. You know, not everything that we bought, we bought because we saw a tremendous upside. You know, there was low hanging fruit. Um, or we bought it because we just we love the brand. And I mean, there was a time, you know, luxury stores are hard to hard to find in Florida because AutoNation was founded here and some of the other publics have a pretty good, you know, foothold. So if you look at like a percentage of revenue of Morgan versus the publics, we're at like 19% of our current revenue. It comes from luxury participating luxury dealerships. The rest is, you know, domestic and import. But if you look at the publics, I think there's only one under 40% of revenue coming from luxury and that's Asbury. Um, and the rest are all over 40%. So for years we were kind of conscious of, Hey, whatever we could grab that makes really good sense in the luxury space, that would be, that would be nice to have further diversifies us, gets us into some new brands. Typically the margins are a little bit better on some of the luxury product. Of course, 
you know, there's always a yin and yang, right? Who's been, who's Tesla been banging on? So the luxury legacy manufacturers. So I can also remember at a time where like, you know, luxury was maybe two or 4% of, you know, our, our total, uh, total generated revenue. So there's times we do get maybe strategic. Um, there's <laughs> markets we'd love to, to have more throughput in Orlando, uh, South Florida, you know, uh, we've only been in South Florida for, I think the past four, four years, you know, Jacksonville is a market that I think is, you know, will continue to grow. It would be a good market for us to be in. We dominate here in Tampa. We've got, I think, 23 retail in, you know, Tampa, Sarasota. We love Southwest Florida. We've got good throughput there. So you're really looking, you're, you're pretty much saying, hey, it's store by store basis. And, you know, you treat them all independently. You, you, you look at the opportunity. It's, it's got a pencil too. It does have to pencil. So, you know, it, again, it's like, it's, it sounds like the Warren Buffett mantra, no, like buy, buy great businesses that are mispriced or whatever, however he says that. Yeah. Or, or fundamentally, they just have different priorities than you. You know, a very common tale in our business is, you know, generational car dealers. And I think, you know, Alan talked about this a little bit, you know, generational car dealers that did a great job of selling new cars. They served the factory extremely well. They were very conservative in used cars and maybe potentially F and I. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they don't have what we have, which is, you know, interwoven into our fixed operations, which for people listening, when I say fixed operations, I mean service parts, body shop, is, you know, that independent streak, that independent flair. You know, I think Larry told Automotive News in his first interview with him back in like 05 that he used to steal customers from the franchise dealers and now he's trying to get them back. And I thought that was so funny because it's so true, right? Why do people go to a Jiffy Lube or an independent Sometimes it's because of miseducation, but it's usually overpriced and how they're treated. Yeah, yeah they want to save money. Yeah, yeah. they want to save money. Oh, why, and they think they're treated. Oh, yeah. Why, why go to the franchise dealer? You can, uh, why, why pay the certified pre owned markup when you could buy a used car from us that's reconditioned just as well? Yeah, see, I mean, you, <laughs> who hasn't used that line? <laughs> you, yeah, you, you, you've kind of lived that existence on the retail side. So that's a very common tale. Somebody who's just been a really good new car dealer. So we look at their business and, and you know, we're thankful they have that customer base and that throughput, but we're going, Hey, what if we did one to one? You know, we could do one to one new to use. You know, and Al Hendrickson. You know, you brought it up again on on the F- big boy. X. That's not for anyone listening. Al Hendrickson. That's the Toyota store that I tweeted about that uh, Morgan Auto Group just recently purchased. Yeah, and according to Alan, it was the it was the largest you know yeah. blue sky, not multiple largest blue, blue sky. sky. And again, for people listening, know, enter- enterprise. Yes, that's yeah. just the value on the goodwill um, of yeah. of the dealership on the revenue. Yes, yeah, on the revenue and. It was so exciting. I'll never forget the day we're, we're all sitting down, executive team, and we're, we're just kind of talking through it. And we're working through our pro formas. And we had, I think, we three revisions of the pro forma. And we're all sitting here. <laughs> and then it came time to... And it's funny because sometimes we'll, you know, we don't involve the whole team in the what's the offer going to be. But this one was different. So we did. And it was just great because, I mean, it just numbers that in my mind was struggle, really struggling. I mean, I, I just knew kind of what the number was going to have to be to earn that deal. But I had such confidence, like who, I think at the time I would tell people who doesn't want, you know, people within our office, who doesn't want just a big, strong asset like Al Hendrickson Toyota. And what I mean by that is, you know, even though Toyota, I think they're on the bottom end of the spectrum from a day supplies perspective. Correct. But, you know, you look at, you look at that, you know, customer, what they, what they want, they want Toyota. Toyota has been able to somehow, you know, they've struggled a little bit getting inventory to the dealers, but it hasn't hurt, you know, the consumers want well and desire for their products. And, you know, 
my second existence in the dealership world was in a Toyota store. And Southeast Toyota, uh, again, for, for people listening who don't understand the nuances of the business, Southeast Toyota is the last private distributorship in the United States of, I think, any manufacturer. Why does that matter? Because they're different. It's just, it's, you get a little different flavor of that typical communication with the, with the manufacturer. As a dealer. Yes. And does that impact the consumer in any way? Is it like, you know, more availability for inventory? I think so. I think so. Because you have a real retail mindset that doesn't always sit at that legacy manufacturer leadership level that sits, you know, down the street in Deerfield Beach. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good thing for consumers because ultimately they want to sell cars. But there's, you know, I can remember old stories, you know, Jim Moran would take a slow moving model and he would bring it into the, you know, their, their, whatever, their uh, regional distribution center in Jacksonville. And he'd put a stripe on it, different wheels on it, different tires on it, and, you know, added equipment and find a way to make it different and appealing. And I remember we used to sell these XSP edition Tundras back when like Chrome was the, you know, Chrome was the thing. And the joke was these Northeastern dealers would be calling, you know, their Toyota rep going, I want an XSP Tundra. It's like, well, no, that's Southeast Toyota only edition. So Jim Moran, who was the owner of, you know, SET and Jim Moran and Associates, you know, he was a retailer at heart and, and kind of cared about what those consumers, you know, wanted. He wanted to sell cars. And, um, you know, that still exists to a, to a large degree to, today. But, but again, so going back to AHT, you know, if, if I could put everyone on the ground right now and do a Google 360, it's a dilapidated facility. It looks like it was built before there was an image program. And I mean, you know, I, I'll never forget the first day on the ground before we had bought the store. And I'm, you know, watching, you know, 60 customers in the service drive and they've got these, you know, fans above their head that really are doing nothing. They're not pushing any air, right? They're basically like the, you know, the ceiling fan you'd have in your home. No, I know you guys, it's like, you should be thrilled when you see that because it's opportunity. I mean, they're probably using that to sell cars, right? You're not paying for the overhead of the store. <laughs> As you can see, we, have, we haven't done much with it, you know? And you know, right. that's why you should buy here because I'm not, yeah. you know, I'm not passing on our building costs. Uh -huh. it, it, it's I, it's I, like I a contractor. It. It's like finding a contractor, you know, the ones with like the white vans and like the broken bumper. It's like you, you want them to come because you know that you're not paying for the advertising that they're spending on Google, everything. Else. Right. And, uh, and by the way, none of that's true. When we build a nice new clean facility, none of that's true. No, the, the reality is we, we think we can enhance the experience, you know, the the throughput's great in that market there. There's a lot of upside on the service side. But, you know, we looked at that deal and, you know, they're selling whatever they were selling, 700, 800, 900 new cars a month. And they were selling 150 used. So we go, gosh, what if we could do maybe not one-to-one -one right away, but what if we could sell 500 used? You know, they've got, the, they've got the real estate to do it. The market's there. So, you know, one check, you know, improvement F&I. And then on the fixed side. So... I don't want people to get hung up on, it's funny, we have we do feel calls after acquisitions, like stop driving up the market, driving up pricing. And, and again, Alan, you know, you know, I joke sometimes that the day that we were closing that deal, I said, I, I didn't know who was more excited, the Hendrickson family or, or Alan Haig, because he knew, he knew in his heart of hearts that that was a record on the, the blue sky side. But, you know, that wasn't, there have been deals where I winced at, at what we were paying on the, on the blue sky side, but not, not this one, because- I know there's there's more to serve in that in that market in that store. So actually, let me ask you this question: Don't you think that by not announcing the blue sky multiple or the value, people are going to assume the worst and are going to assume a higher number? Like 
I don't care what people. No, assume. but you just mentioned. I know you're trying to drag. No, 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 you're no, trying no, no, to drag no, it out. Not, of a, me. not at all. No, I just think that it's already known to be a record sale, and people are you know calling you asking you why you're driving up the market. Could that work against you? <laughs> How? How? I mean, I, I, when when Alan made that announcement, I saw it on social like the day of the sale. You know, I called. I called Larry. I was sitting with Larry, and I was like, "Did you did you tell him he could do that? You know, because that's just not the kind of thing that you know." Somebody should have approved it. And, and Larry goes, yeah, I'm comfortable with that. I'm like, me too. What better, what better promotion for us as acquirers than we broke the, the blue sky, Correct. you know, we broke the, yep. the total amount paid for a single point, you know, single store dealership. Um, you know, and, and look, there's other secret sauce when it comes to acquisition. I feel like that we have that the publics don't. As you've noticed, the Hendrickson family wanted that name to stay on the dealership. I'm not so sure an auto nation or somebody else could make that agreement, could make that commitment to a family like the Hendrickson's. Uh, we don't care whose name is on the store. The Morgan name only sits on one of our dealerships. We've never cared. It's not about I us. Know that. Yeah. So that's a, I, I think that's a, a thing that's helped us in acquisition. We, we've had the, you know, one of the top five most profitable Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram stores in the country. It's right here in Tampa. Jerry Ohm, Jerry Ohm Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram, Jerry you know, my daughter picks vegetables out of Jerry's garden twice annually. Wow. Uh, Dre, his son, Wait, but uh, is one of our auditors. I, Brent, um, I think you just mentioned something very important. This is interesting because everyone is sort of, you know, zigging to the right on like, hey, I have to build this large dealer group, this large business, and I have to make sure it's one brand. You're saying, one second, I think there's some opportunity here. I'm not going to change the brand in every market I go into. Yes, I'm going to be leaving something on the table, which is building a, a consumer, uh, a consumer focused brand that you know everyone knows the name of potentially in you know Florida or the entire country. But it also provides you with an opportunity or a competitive advantage to make these acquisitions because for that seller that wants to retain the name or that wants to have their name stay in the market, and potentially for the for the people in the market that want to continue doing business with that brand because maybe it means something to them or they've been buying cars there their whole life. You offer that. And I think that's unique. Yeah. I mean, it is unique. And it, you know, I think for us initially, we kind of understood it also as an opportunity or a problem, right? Like in a perfect world, we'd have Morgan on everything. Everyone would understand who our stores are and how our, you know, what our network has grown to be. The reality of life is that you can't do that. So the luxury manufacturers, you know, they, they dictate that it's city, you know, it's brand and it's, it's city name. So you think about BMW of Tampa, BMW of Sarasota, that couldn't be Morgan BMW. Uh, and having three Morgan BMWs could potentially confusing. You know, we we started kind of bringing that to the import realm. Our the first store that we acquired as Morgan was called Precision Toyota, and we, you know, and I remember sitting down with with Larry and our team, like, what are we going to call it? And I was like, hey, from an organic service, you know, search perspective, what's better than Toyota Tampa Bay? I mean, this is back in two thousand four. You know, paid search is still, you know, hardly a thing. Right. Google hasn't been around very long, um, but I understood a little bit about organic search and just thought that would serve us better. Now, you could argue it, you know, six different ways, I, I think. But the reality is, if there's a digital pivot, you can do it no matter what the stores are named. I think Lithia has shown you that with their driveway product. Right. They're going to consolidate that offering under a different digital offering. It doesn't matter what the, you know, the store is called yeah. Wesley Chapel Honda or whatever, you know, whatever it is. Um, and I, I tend to agree with that. And again, if it gives you, if it gives the seller a better feeling about the legacy that they spent maybe an you know, entire generation or multiple generations, their family building, 
Why not? How did you source? How did you source this deal? This uh, Al Andreessen deal, which again, if I'm not mistaken, was the second. It is the second largest Toyota dealer in the country, right? Correct. Correct. And there's been times I think they've been number one too. They wouldn't Ooh. want me to say that um, <laughs> over Longo. But so uh, how did you source it? No, yeah. Well, so you know that deal came with the broker. So you know Alan Haig, who's a, a reputable broker in our space. I'd say he's one of the you know certainly yeah. the top two between Fre- him and Kerrigan. And Kerrigan. Yeah. yeah, and great great guy. You know, it, it, again, kind of interesting crawling into his mindset. But when he you know when he sits and works with the seller and says, "Hey, I've got two or three people in mind." You know, we we worked hard with. Our, our relationship with Alan. So we are in consideration for those kinds of deals. We're well, we're well capitalized. Um, and we feel like we are very organized at acquisition, you know, again, because of Alan and the Hendrickson family, we were able to have boots on the ground in that store months before we closed. And when you can get close to the people in the operation and already have those relationships, it does a, it does a tremendous <laughs> value for those existing staff, create synergies. You're hitting the ground running. You're not, you know, making those pivots in 90 days and and they're all different. So some of them you walk in and you know, the owner tells you, Hey, this, you know, this is my GM, but he's not very good. No, I'm dead serious. You know, I, I should have fired him years ago. You guys need to take care of him. You need to wax him. Thanks. This case was very different. Uh, it was, you need to get to know this GM, you know, he's solid, he's sharp. You're going to like him. And, um, you know, Scott Zuckerman and, just meeting him from kind of day one, that just helped us kind of foster a, a look, we're not perfect. That's a big, big store. Uh, we work extremely hard at acquisition, you know, two calls a week. We've got a checklist 250 deep. We've got, you know, 20, 25 Morgan associates that that service the organization around a large acquisition. And then we put, I think we put, we put too many bodies on the ground, but the day we closed, we had 50 associates from other stores helping with transitions with DMS you know, uh, CRM, all uh, finance systems, DocuPad, um, they couldn't basically turn around without having help nearby mm-hmm. if they need. Yeah, you have a, you have this entire platform and system which allows you to you know do it pretty pretty seamlessly. It's incredible. It, and I'll say this, you know, I think we we did the math since 2016 when we became kind of an entirely new different organ. Uh, we've done 60 percent of our acquisitions have come without a broker. So. On the other side of answering that question of how do you source deals, it's relationships. It's being good stewards of your community. It's being having a great acquisitional reputation. We've never retraded a deal. We've had one that kind of fell apart on the closing table. Not really. Um, a week out, they, they wanted a cherry on top and we weren't willing to concede. And that's the only deal in, the, in our acquisitional history that's ever fallen apart. So when you have that level of trust mm-hmm. and reputation, you know, that's certainly something that we offer. And again, we're open-minded, you know, we're not waiting at the door like Darth Vader with 200 stormtroopers ready to come in and, you know, we say it all the time when we first step into a store, look, we, we, we're not prepared to run the store. You guys are going to continue to run the store. We just want to make it better. And this is how we're going to do it. You DM'd me on Twitter, or now it's X. I think it was like a couple of days after the sale, maybe a day after or whatever. It got announced. What was that? You were just telling me about a little bit about you know the process and kind of you know. I asked you a couple of questions, which if you'd like, you can you know share here. But what was it like for you doing this deal as CEO? Just w- that feeling, you know, the night before signing. Like, give us that you know really kind of personal feeling of doing such a big deal, 
uh, for the store and kind of getting to this level. You, you even said it yourself, like these are numbers that you're not very used to um, on an acquisition basis. Yeah, this was this one was really special um, for a, a variety of reasons, and I don't I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, but when we went to make our offer, we asked Alan if we could do it to the Hendrickson family in person. And Al Junior and Al Senior, uh, Al Senior had actually either gifted or sold the store to his son Al Junior. So Al Junior was the sole. Uh, I don't think there's any problem with saying that the sole owner of the dealership at the time. And we flew to their home, and on a Saturday morning. Larry and I went into the Hendrickson household and sat with Al Sr. and Al Jr. before they'd seen the numbers with the offer ready to present. But we wanted them to know who who we were and a little bit about how we felt about us. Because that, that's a look, it doesn't matter to every seller. Some sellers, it's just, you know, what what are the numbers? Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't care what you do with my I, yeah. I just for whatever reason. It's it's a you know, shrewd deal. And if you built something great, I guess you have the uh you have the right to feel that way. But the, you know, Hendrickson, I think that made an impression on them. Um, you know, certainly our offer was fair because it was accepted. I, that was, yeah, it was surreal. Surreal because, you know, we started with the Toyota store, you know, having it be top two in the United States, Wait, having, did, did having they, it be on kind of did the- Did they accept on the spot? Uh, with Yeah. With, I mean, we worked it out with, an, and with <laughs> I, my, if memory serves me correct, I don't know. Did we, did we, I think we, I thought we shook hands that morning. I don't. <laughs> for some reason it's all a blur now but i thought we knew by the end of the day that they were gonna you know sign the appa and, and move forward I with love us. That. you were probably on the way back to the airport with larry to looking at each other shaking hands we got it we got it done look what they what they built was special um it's a market we love um and it's a big it's just a i i joked it's a big dumb asset i mean it's you know, I've heard people say, well, you know, shoot, give me a big volume Toyota store. I couldn't screw it up. That's not true. Look, I've seen Toyota stores lose money, you know. Um, but at the end of the day, this is just a, a huge, exciting acquisition. But, um, yeah, so, getting, you know, look, there's always dr- drama in the closing. I joke, if you were going to write a book about acquisitions, the most interesting chapter would be the negotiation about used car values. Because everyone turns into a used car appraiser the day they're selling their store. <laughs> and they can either be a... And when you have, you know, 300, 400 vehicles to appraise, you know, that can, I've, I've seen that go a million different ways, but it can be very, very dramatic. I mean, the other assets that you're buying, it's all in the agreement, right? But, you know, typically it's appraised. That's the only place where it's like sort of like there's a little variance and everyone's kind of, oh, no, this car is worth more. This is less. Especially in today's, you know, dynamic too. We had, you know, we had a, uh, you know, used cars over the past three years that were increasing in value, right? There's guys in the business who think that was normal, uh, fascinating times, but no, that was a, that was a big acquisition. And, and again, we're, you know, we're not perfect, but we know what we have there and we've got the guts of something really special. How do you feel about Toyota, right? Like your biggest deal, a Toyota deal. How do you feel about the future of Toyota? They're clearly being very hesitant or just reluctant to kind of go headfirst into EVs like other manufacturers. What's your thoughts there? I don't think they're wrong. There's some really bright people at Toyota. And you have to, I think you have to ask yourself when we you will transition here, talk about EVs. What's the customer's appetite for electric vehicles, right? Because Tesla's done a, a really great job of selling hundreds and thousands of electronic vehicles in the United States and kind of meeting maybe that existing need and driving more and doing it without, you know, traditional advertising. I mean, hats off. I have you know, buku respect to Elon Musk and what he's built at Tesla. 
you know, having said that, I think a lot of what is driving the legacy manufacturer towards EVs is governmental, it's policy. And at some point, my fear is we're going to outkick the consumer's appetite here. And I, you know, it's funny, a couple of, you know, a couple of years ago, I was, I was dating a girl and drove a Model 3, still, still with the same girl. <laughs> but, you know, I'm like, you know, I've, I've always wanted to drive a Tesla, but I don't want to be the guy at Morgan Automotive pulling up in a, a Model 3. But, you know, they're, they're coming to the legacy manufacturers. And as soon as I don't feel like I'm taking gross profit out of one of my, my store's mouths, I'm going to drive one. So that was a that was December of twenty one. Um, I hopped in an EV and I've been in it ever since. So and I'll never not. Have. What do you drive now? So it's it's a nice one. It's the EQS. It's the Mercedes EQS. I've been in it since December twenty one. Not necessarily a Mercedes guy. It just happened to be the one EV we had plenty yeah. of, and I wasn't you know taking one from a a prospective consumer. And you know I'll never probably I'll. I say, yeah, I'll never not, my daily driver will be an EV from here moving forward. Wow. That's a bold statement. Yeah. Why do you say that? Well, okay. I think the greatest point of inflection is this. It's got nothing to do, sadly, with the environment. It's got nothing to do with, you know, saving money, lower maintenance because it's a non-liquid services vehicle. Um, not, nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with how it drives. When you drive an EV, you can call them, you know, high-powered golf carts, whatever you want, and you get that instantaneous acceleration, it's tough to go back. And when I'm sitting at a stoplight and I want to, you know, I'm merging or, you know, I'm making a left-hand turn and I want to beat the car in front of me, if I'm in a BMW, you know, X6M, I might have some turbo lag when I mash down that accelerator to beat that car. I might not know what to expect. I might, you know, throw my head into the back seat. In an EV, it's instantaneous acceleration. It's exhilarating. So with, with that said, so you like to instant torque, right? But with that said, why why do you think Toyota's not making a mistake by being very well, reluctant to go into well, uh, Look, anyone can play judge and jury there. I think the question I saw it a little differently. Are they making a mistake in their what they're saying? I think is is true. You know, I think for now, hybrid hybrid until some questions are answered, right? How they're going to recycle batteries. You know, we all know that the mining of lithium decimates that micro environment environmentally. So I, I think maybe there's some, maybe some conjecture of, hey, look, what if we waited a little while? What, what would be maybe a better time to, to go full bore into electric? So I think hybrid for a lot of reasons, both environmentally, uh, you know, from a, just a fuel consumption standpoint, what's good for the consumer? I think Toyota's kind of tried and true of a lot of things they're saying. And it was funny because I think you saw me, you know, post on on X recently, you know, Farley kind of for the first time at Ford, you know, retrading some of his sentiment, right? From EV to like talking about hybrid drivetrains. And it and it's fascinating because there's some Toyotas you can't buy unless it's a hybrid. And that's been the truth for a, a long time now. I just I have a lot of confidence in Toyota. I've read that they've also maybe are ahead of some of the manufacturers on solid state battery technology. So it's kind of fascinating if they've got what they say they have, you know, by the time they get to the market, maybe they'll have a kind of a second mover killer on the EV side. You, you know, I, I want to add like the way I feel about what I'm seeing with Toyota, um, and I could be completely wrong, but it, to me, it feels like they're sort of letting everyone kind of battle between each other. And they're sort of standing on the side in this like very wise strategy, potentially, where they're just saying, okay, let's let people kind of battle, lose all their money, you know, make tons of mistakes. And then we'll ride the wave after the kind of the tide is out. We'll see what's the the lay of the land. 
what the market really looks like, what consumers really desire long term, and we'll jump that now. Is that a you know? Will that be a mistake? Will they wait too long? You know, will they continue losing market share due to that as opposed to not having enough inventory? I don't know, but I, I think that's to me. It seems like that's sort of their playbook. Their sales are off the hook. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Demand is you know better than it's ever been, and so they're sort of kind of you know standing on the side and observing. Yeah, for for a lot of reasons, you know, EV level disruption. It's not Apple versus BlackBerry, right? It, it's different. It's not an overnight transition where somebody can come in and with 18 months, take 80% market share for a, a variety of reasons. Most of it because it's just cost prohibitive. You know, that's the problem right now. You know, um, I see in your reporting and, and a lot of the reporting out there, and I see it on my own lots, a lot of what the legacy manufacturers are producing, they're making incredible EVs, right? Better fit and finish than Tesla. Tech that's close to on par, with, with what Tesla has, but they're, they're still piling up. Why? All I can say is two things, right? Cost, you know, the cost to acquire an EV, it seems like most of the manufacturers were talking MSRP price points, 45, 50, 53,000 up, right? That's a lot. That's a lot. That's an, that's an expensive vehicle. If you look at the majority of what, you know, Tesla's market share is now it's model Y model three, right? It's, it's on the more affordable side. So I think, you know, that's, that's one thing. But cost is, it's a big thing. Yeah. And what's the second thing? Yeah. And then I think it's consumer appetite, consumer appetite and education. You know, people talk about, well, I've got range anxiety. I'm worried about charging. You know, the infrastructure is not there. Well, why does that matter? Why does that matter? For $600, you can put a level two charger in your garage, right? You can charge just about any EV overnight, a hundred percent on a level two charger. If you work, live, play within 200 miles of your home, you'll never go to a public charger. Why would you? Yeah. You know, and it's, and, and until you've experienced it, you don't know that. And it, trust me, I went on my first business trip with my daughter up through Gainesville and Jacksonville and the hotel threw me off the charger, you know, it, in the middle of the night and I've got 20% and I got to get back to Tampa and I'm going, Ooh, this is, you know, this isn't going to be fun. And, you know, thank God the, you know, the EVgo infrastructure that had come to Jacksonville was better than what existed in yeah. Tampa because it came later and they were 350 kilowatt chargers and I charged in 15 minutes and went home. But until you've lived it and it is a lifestyle change, you, you don't understand it. Um, and that's going to take some time, right? And then, and again, there are other barriers to entry related to affordability. But I, I see that world a little differently and I can speak very effectively out of both sides of my mouth on EVs any, any day of the week. <laughs> at least that you'd like at me least to. Candid. Um, now in terms of your stores, right? Like, are you preparing your stores for a rise in EV sales? Are you sort of kind of waiting and seeing, you know, facility upgrades or training? What does that look like? Yeah. And it, it, and it's frustrating because, you know, a lot of, you know, I think what people want to talk about is the expense of the charging infrastructure that, and it's kind of being pushed down from the, the OEM perspective, you know, Ford's had a, had a, uh, you know, obviously a very robust program that got retooled because of the, you know, some pushback from the dealer body, you know, Stellantis, you know, we're in the, you know, we we're, we're big players with Stellantis. We've got 12 Stellantis stores. So we're in the process of pushing their EV kind of infrastructure through into our dealerships currently. Um, yeah. So we're, we're getting prepared for the future, but again, it, it's frustrating. So, you know, here we make this commitment with Stellantis. And then in the news is, you know, well, Florida's not going to get any four bodies anymore. So, you know, the Jeep product that's got the, you know, it's, it's kind of a plug-in hybrid 
They're all going to go to the, you know, the, the Zeb states, California and the zero emission states, and your customer can get one if they order one. So it's like, okay, well, what EV product are we going to get here in Florida to plug into these charges that we're about to invest $6 million? Um, so, you know, there's some level of, you know, frustration anytime somebody's mandating, you know, something. You do need a certain level of charging infrastructure to, to service and sell vehicles. Don't get me wrong. Having said that, it's complex, right? Because sometimes you're going back to the substation. Some, you know, sometimes you're just going back to the transformer level. But you're asking a lot of juice, you know, out of facilities that were built in in different times. And you know, I heard a story the other day. I think, it, well, I know it was now. It was on your podcast about what the Ford dealer with the diesel generator to power his EV chargers, just so he could get Ford Lightnings and 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 an EV. And it it just makes me cry laughing. I think it's going to be interesting to see how all this unfolds, given you know how supply is ramping up. Yet it seems like the, by the numbers, demand, and by the increasing day supply, demand for EVs is dropping. Again, Tesla being the exception, and like you said, you know, likely almost entirely being driven to a certain extent by price. Tesla is able to manufacture those or price but, at a certain point. But anytime something doubles, you have to pay attention. Right. And new EV sales, I think, have doubled three years yeah, straight. That's correct. Uh, or pretty close yeah, it's, to it's, it. Right. I Give think it was like one and a half to three or three to six or yeah. something like that. Yeah. 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 So, you know, anytime Percent. something doubles at that at that rate, you've got to pay attention. That's not going to happen forever. But how do people, you know, get comfortable with a new way of doing things? Because they watch their friends, neighbors experience it. So it it's coming. It's an alternative. It's out there today. And it's it's pretty good. You can sit around and, and try to poke as many holes in, as you want into it. But once they've figured out, I think, the affordability perspective, then it's on us to help educate our consumers and bring them over. Now, I, again, my issue is just you know move, in moving too hard and too fast. You're going to leave some consumers behind. And I think some of the legacy manufacturers have been criticized of maybe, of maybe following that line. Mercedes, Ford, you have to, you have to be careful. Do you think dealership profitability has peaked or do you think we have more room to run? How do you think about this as you're growing your stores here? You know, you're making acquisitions. Well, we're, if you're asking, we're same store growth animals. So, you know, we really do focus a lot on, you know, are we growing our throughput? Are we growing our fixed operations, measuring our capacity? How can we do more? How can that particular operation do more? So Morgan's not done growing. We're never done growing. Has, have dealership values peaked from, yeah, I mean, look, in people in ladder 21, 22, they got lucky. They didn't win because they were good. You know, they, they won because, you know, supply yeah, was constrained. Market, yeah. You know, I had a GM, I had a GM tell me earlier this year and he was right. He goes, you know, we used to run around the showroom and joke, you know, dial for dollars, you know, make that the cold call engagement with their, our customer base and make it happen. He goes, the customer's been the one dialing for dollars the last two years. And it's true, right? You have this hypersensitive environment to MSRP plus pricing, all, all predicated upon supply constraint. Now, I do think in kind of the post-COVID Tesla world that we live in a real world of winners and losers from a brand perspective. I'm maybe more conscious of that recently. And that's just my opinion. There's, there are going to be winners and losers is a part of this, you know, this transformation 
this move to EV. There already is. Um, hey, there already. What do are. you think are going to be the? Um, what do you think are going to be the biggest losers? I I know the answer. I'm just trying to figure out whether I'm confident enough to 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 say Let, it right now. How about let's say who are, about, who are going to be the this? biggest I'll, winners? Who are going to be the biggest winners? Well, I'll tell you some of the the earlier winners, and and this has to, more to do with COVID inflation mm-hmm. than it does EVs. But Kia and Hyundai have been great because um, they weren't as supply constrained as as Toyota and Honda times, this- and they've got really really good product. You know that Telluride. I can't think of a single vehicle in the legacy manufacturer landscape of the past five, six years that has remained as steadily hot as a Kia Telluride. And I go everywhere and people want it and they're hard to get for my friends and family. We get as many as we can and it's just a great, it's a great vehicle. They've done, a, I think, a terrific I've job. I've also noticed that people from like all kinds of different social classes buying that, which I think is interesting. Like, yeah. you know, I, I've, I've just seen, you know, I've spoken to friends and, you know, kind of relatives and stuff, but, you know, some people that are, pretty wealthy by Tellurides. Um, and then also, you know, your average kind of, you know, average person, you know, salary job, whatever. Like, I, I, I think it's very interesting how this kind of, I call it like the crossover SUV, how it's able to penetrate these different types of uh, consumer segments. Well, and yeah, and if you're building, is there a better compliment to give a manufacturer of motor vehicles than what you just did, right? It's a model that people want to see themselves in. It's aspirational in a sense, right? But it's also something, let's face it, when there's un- uncertainty in the marketplace, right? People people tend to care less about the label on the front of their vehicle and what they're spending, right? And they'll play down into something as long as it represents a premium value. And that word premium just gets overused by all the manufacturers. And it used to just drive me nuts because I was a Buick dealer. I have to listen to that word every day. And I'm like, look, you're trying to play in this space between Cadillac and Chevrolet. And it, there's nobody in, there's nobody who wants to play in that space, right? They want, they want the best of the best. Somehow, you know, Kia has been able to do that. And when there is uncertainty in the marketplace, a lot of people start, I think they broaden their palette of what they'll consider from a brand perspective. And brand loyalty just seems to me that it's very volatile right now. It used to be that they weren't loyal to the dealership, but they were loyal to the brand. And I don't think that's true anymore. I don't think that's true at all. I think there's a lot of brand volatility. So it's, I think we just live in fascinating times. Well, time. I think you have no choice. I mean, if you need a certain car at a certain price point and you know, one manufacturer doesn't yeah. have it or it's you know, too expensive, you're going to go elsewhere. But do you think that Toyota has been losing market share? Now, we know that their demand is red hot. We know that there are still quote unquote supply constraints for whatever reasons, yeah. whatever's happening there internally. Do you think that's long-term going to be detrimental to Toyota? Or do you think that this is just them whether you know need to work needing to work under manufacturing or realizing that the company can be just as profitable selling fewer units how do you think about that i've got a lot of confidence in toyota i just do you know they still offer products at price points that that other brands don't certainly if we if we could get more toyotas we'd sell more toyotas but the dealership you know the dealership body's kind of happy because it's stabilized margin you know from a certain perspective so dealership profitability is still still very well they make a a, a great car you know, I think it's funny. We talked a little bit about kind of their mindset on EV. It, it sounds to me like in the you know the background, whether it's hydrogen, whether it's solid state batteries in EV, they're not going to miss a step, right? They're just not. They're not going to let the world pass them by. They're just not. Not that they're too big to fail. They're just too smart not to win. Ooh, and I like I've that. got. They're too smart not to win. <laughs> no, they're just they're too smart not to win. They're they're. I think from a we used to say. You know, a lot of these manufacturers, we used to joke all the time, like Volkswagen, I can remember, oh, it'll be five years before Germany figures out that, you know, these window motors drop in these Jettas or, you know, whatever the issue is. And I can remember 
Toyota, my second year in the business, we've got our GMs going to field input meetings and that data is going back to Japan. I mean, brilliant, brilliant. They just, they, they are so connected to the experience of what they do. I'm not worried mm-hmm. about Toyota. Do you have uh, any Ford source? We do. We have four. What's your take? I know you mentioned Farley just a little bit. What's your take on this, like the whole like direction, brand vision, kind of murmurs of like disintermediation or kind of the direct to consumer? Like, what, what's your general thoughts on Ford? I've I've never seen a manufacturer that unless that look unless they're just crushing it right unless people are just fighting you know hand over fist for the product I've never seen a manufacturer create that much discontentment from a dealer body perspective and not have to come crawling back at some point. Do you think it's a lost cause or do you think a change of leadership? No, or, no, yeah. no, no, no. And I under I understand a lot of what excites Farley. I think I understand. Right, he's trying to you know, limit production and delivery costs and, and really trying to create, a, you know, some efficiencies here and deliver a better experience to the consumer. Mm-hmm. His heart's in the right place. I, I don't, look, I don't sit on the, the Ford dealer council, but, um, you know, to me, it seemed like he just could have gone about, you know, certain things differently to try to get there. And, and again, you know, I've talked to a lot of Tesla consumers, you know, that consumer experience has its pitfalls. It's not perfect. Yeah. You know, I mean, People, if they're buying a new Tesla, they call me on the trade because a lot of the local Tesla stores either put an inferior number on that vehicle or they don't they don't know what to do with the trade. Um, that's not a great experience. If they can't take care of the totality of what you're trying to accomplish, yeah. forget about it. So again, I can kind of see both sides of the issue, but he's, yeah, too strong, too much. And now I will kind of see maybe a little bit of, of walking back some of that. That, yeah, um, I tweeted that, about I think that. The, it, it definitely looks like, you know, little signals of kind yeah. of retracting just a little bit. I think the product's good. You know, I do. My, you know, we finally were able to get a lightning for my, my brother-in-law. And uh, I was, you know, I've driven one before, of course. But, I mean, I think the product's good. I think the execution on the product, and that shouldn't matter. Because I don't think every legacy manufacturer mm-hmm. has built an, an EV that, yeah, that, that they're extremely proud of. So, before we wrap up, I mean, just uh, on this note still with Ford, if you have a message for, for Jim Farley regarding what you just mentioned, like, what would it be? Start with what the consumer wants. Start with what a Ford customer wants. And then and then move forward hand in hand with the dealer body on how to how to do a better job and take share. And I again I think it was the cart before the horse. I think anytime you're you're telling your consumer, I know what's best for you, and I don't think they were bought in on what's best for them. Um, and there's a high look. Where, I mean, where do you think EV, the consumer wants differently than what's being done right now by Ford? I don't think the consumer is, you know, I don't, again, it's, it's consumer appetite related to EVs. You know, I think hybrid drivetrains, I think, yeah, I don't, I don't think every consumer wants to feel like an EV is being, you know, shoved down their throat. I just, I just don't. And then again, trying to take from a retailing perspective, you know, a certain amount of that entrepreneurial spirit out of, you know, sucking that out of the dealership. They put or tried to put some real constraints and we did some legislation here in Florida that we supported that kind of, you know, keeps that from affecting us, but really tried to bring the agency model here on the EV side. And I think that's a mistake. I think you meet that dealer that's out kicking his coverage and selling three times what he should in the market. There's a reason he's treating his customers better. He's doing it at a fair price. Right. And he understands the system to get the inventory. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And he messed with that. Yeah. So that's where some of the dealer discontentment comes from. But I also think, you know, consumers, when 
you know, the leader of what they have in their driveway is just EV, 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 and trying to, you know, maybe be like an Elon Musk type type character or could be perceived that way. I think that's danger. I think that's there's some danger in that. I want to I want to shift topics for one second. Uh, one thing that we haven't touched on, which I think you've done very uniquely, is the way you've capitalized the company. I don't think you know many private car dealer groups bring in private equity. So I just found that very interesting. I would love if you could just tell us about that that experience for you. I'm going to assume that was your first time ever raising capital as well uh, when you brought private equity into the company. So could you kind of walk us through that? Yeah, we you know we had more or less a, a you know traditional debt syndication. You know, we were building that with with multiple lenders. We started Bank of America, SunTrust, very similar so similar syndication. You're talking about earlier earlier on in the mortgage yes. all your life. Yeah, from outset. From yes. outset. Just how we yeah. You're, so how you know who managed our who managed our debt. You were you were raising and, debt to buy dealerships and typically give us some more details. Like is this debt like fixed rates, floating rates? How does this work? Well, floating rates, but I mean that's not exciting for people to hear about. No, but, but I, I just think I like I like that nitty gritty. So if you're typically that that's how typically you've funded these acquisitions. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't know what a you know a rate swap was back then. So, you know, a lot of this wasn't necessarily in my purview. But we were, you know, you asked me earlier, I can tie two subjects together. You asked me about succession planning. Yeah. So dad and I had sat down and really started to talk about what a succession plan works, which I think is hilarious because He's not, he's not going to retire. He never needs to retire. There was no, there's no part of the script as long as he's competent where anyone's pushing him out the door. <laughs> he is that, he is that important to the fabric of our business. So it, we, we kind of decided, look, maybe instead of a succession policy, we just go for it. Like we just, we just get back to really growing this business. And we had a, a friend of uh, dad's had called him and said, Hey, I want you to take a lunch with a guy named Eric Singer. And Eric's just a, a friend of mine out of Michigan. He's been in and around the industry and he's kind of a, I don't know how to say it. He's kind of a, um, a freelance M&A mm-hmm. guy or something. And we, t- we took this lunch and, um, you know, the, the friend of, of dad's had been involved, had private equity involved in this business. And Eric wanted to introduce us to some friends of his at Blackstone. And that's, that's obviously a big name. And I, it's funny. I was looking, I looked it up last night. This was July 2nd. 2015, we had this lunch. And by the end of the year, Blackstone was doing due diligence on our business to get involved and support us with equity. And frankly, they they just didn't have the bedside manner. They just didn't seem like our type of people, extremely intelligent folks and, and great to have those relationships and kind of see a little bit under their, their curtain. But we ended up doing business with a, a smaller house out of Ride, New York named Greenbrier Equity. And they're traditional private equity, right? It's it was an investment, uh, gave us some dry powder to do some acquisitions, and you know, and then they, you know, it's got a five year fun life, and you know, and, and it is what it is. Problem was, we deployed all their capital they gave us in like a year and a half. So it's like, okay, what do we do now? Do we sit on our hands for you know three and a half years, you know, and just and wait for the clock to expire? Do we do we buy them out? And then just go back and, and start generating, you know, focus on our business and then just reinvest those earnings and acquisition at a later date. You know, what do, what do we do? And we did 19 acquisitions with Greenbrier and we went out and kind of um, looking for somebody who could take out that investment and give us more capital to run. And that turned into kind of a unicorn in the capital space. Guys named Redwood, Redwood Holdings, Redwood Capital. 
out of out of the Baltimore area, a guy by the name of Jim Davis, who uh, he was the founder of the largest staffing company in the United States, Allegis, with his cousin uh, Steve Biscotti, who's the owner of the Baltimore Ravens, and just neat people. And it's a small house, and they're through cycle guys. Uh, they don't they don't raise funds. They're not traditional. They're not really private equity. It's really kind of like a family equity office on steroids. And they've just brought a lot of value to our business. And we've done 35 acquisitions since 2019 with Redwood. We've been the second only. We've also raised cop, uh, capital through a bond raise. We're the second only private auto retail group in the country to do that. How'd, how'd that work? I, I think, well, at least at that time. Yeah, how'd that work? Um, that was a real education for me because that's not, you know, I, I'm not an MBA guy. And we've reopened that that bond twice, you know. So I think you know whatever the first bite at the apple might have been seven hundred million, then three hundred million, then another two hundred, whatever it was. It's it's been, it's you know we've driven a lot of capital to that through that bond offering. But the Redwood guys are you know they're great in console. As long as we run a good business, they're not you know they're not in playing you know armchair quarterback as far as operations. Uh, we talk to them all the time, and um, they were familiar with our space. They're also involved in the RV space. So they've, they've got some understanding, kind of the franchised retail world, and it's just been a great fit. And yeah, private equity, when we got involved with Greenbrier, it was very, I think Jordan Capital was running around with, with Rick Ford in the Midwest, acquiring some things. So you'd go to NADA and, you know, Alan would be having a symposium with, you know, hey, private equity is part of our business. And it took a while, I think, for the legacy manufacturers to get comfortable with private equity having any kind of equity hold on private dealership businesses but really yeah i actually i mean i think that like given there's so many publics i I wouldn't think that that's like a a thing yeah i mean i think you know the the reality is they had some concerns and i and again when you say private equity i think you have to be careful Mm -hmm. because again i wouldn't put the redwood guys under that umbrella but it was it was quite an education so to think that it seems like I, i may be oversimplifying but it seems like it feels like a bit more family office capital yeah, it is. And, you know, we, we, but it turned us into a, you know, that lunch meeting, I was joking with Eric Singer last night, you know, that lunch meeting turned us into a completely different animal. And we restructured our executive team. And, you know, I became CEO, um, you know, Tom Moore, our, our COO. Um, I'm trying to think when he came, it would have been maybe a, a year after he came to the fold as our COO. Yeah, we had to do a lot of kind of preparation for the kind of growth that we that we saw coming. And then we've been, you know, moving at a clip of about, you know, whatever it is, eight to 10 stores a year. So how is your, it's, how has your role changed throughout all this, right? Like how is your day, how have your, you know, kind of focus and just general duties, how has that changed for you? Yeah, great, great question. You know, when you're, when you're doing 10 acquisitions, you know, annually, those become very time consuming. So you almost, I almost see like there's sometimes are periods of time where I have, you know, maybe two or three jobs. And then you throw in maybe a week where we're doing bond marketing, right? So it, you know, my life's gotten very fascinating in the sense that there's still the traditional operational role, right? Where we're talking about results, we're measuring, we're managing, we're communicating, um, you know, what's desired. And we're also trying to, you know, yeah, we're, we're taking the temperature of what's going on in the market. And then we're also, you know, acquiring. That's a, that's a you know, a very time consuming thing from negotiating a deal negotiating the specifics of a deal and then kind of articulating how you're, how you're going to take that on. Um, and we have an incredible, we've got two legal guys here. Our general counsel is incredible as far as, you know, handling all the manufacturer approval stuff. Um, but yeah, our, you know, my, my life has changed considerably since that 2016 date, because it used to just be about, 
you know, acquired a store a year and how are we going to make our same stores better? So now it's, you know, it's a little bit more diverse Mm -hmm. um, and we've got, and we've got more stores to pay attention to. So we've had to drive, I think, some efficiencies and think differently about how we do things because, you know, time is the one asset you can't produce more of uh, no matter how much you you'd like. Um, And we just, we've got an incredible team. We say it every day. It's all people. It's all people. We've got three, we've got three laws at Morgan Auto Group. Okay. One is that you, you know, you, you can't let a good person leave the company, right? If somebody's trying to leave, they've got talent. We want to hear about it. We want to talk about it. Number two is, you know, you can't go to bed at night knowing that you have a customer that's upset and hasn't been handled. And number three is it's all people, you know? So we have, we have great people and that's allowed us to facilitate this level. Tell me more about the people, right? Like, first of all, I think those are good, just great core tenants and and it's like, it's, it's, it's so simple yet. So, so powerful, right? Like don't go to sleep if a customer is upset, right? Like I, I remember, you know, many nights yeah. of, you know, being on the phone with, you know, someone at 10 PM because it just freaks you out. You're like, why? I don't, I don't want to get, you know, that one that bad person to all 10, 10 other, you know, people about a, some bad experience or whatever. But tell me about like, how do you find, you know, your best people? How, how, what has that process been like for you? You know, and it's a, it's a mix, you know, now when I look around, we have executive team members that we brought from the outside. You know, we have a tremendous, uh, you know, newer HR kind of chief of people that came from one of the public companies. You know, we've got our head of financial services, kind of the guy who runs our F&I deal. You know, he came from a large private cap group. Our CFO was a receptionist in this business when she was 17 years old. She was a single mom at the age of 18. And we hired her as our first new hire controller in our first dealership, Toyota Tampa Bay. So she's gone from, you know, running a store that netted, you know, on a good month, $100,000 to, uh, you know, being the CFO of a nearly $9 billion revenue business, which is incredible. What was that? I mean, what's t- like that process seems, you know, crazy for someone like, you know, to just come in yeah. and grow to CFO. Like, what has that process been like for her? Um. She's had to change the way she lives. I mean, you know, she's had to hire people to do things that she enjoys doing. Um, I would say her ability to grow has a large, uh, a large amount to do with the fact that she's not really a traditional, typical CFO. She understands every nook and cranny of the car business. You know, and it probably you have to ask her, but it probably hasn't always been easy. Yeah, this wasn't. You know, when we hired her to commandeer, you know, a, a single point Toyota store. You know, this wasn't in the offering, right? Hey, you're going to, you know, you're going to oversee, you know, hundreds of millions and, you know, bond raise, this, that. It's, I think, been a good education for our COO, Tom Moore, came through an acquisition, our third acquisition. Uh, He was an operator. He actually left us for a period of time, ran his own store, uh, used to run a, a platform of stores. And, you know, over time, it was clear that whatever we gave Tom, uh, he didn't lose anything. And it was, you know, strange. Sometimes people can go from a single, you know, point environment where they're a micromanager and you put them into a larger and they just don't know how to pull Mm -hmm. the same levers that they did when they had a smaller focus of responsibility. And Tom's been someone who's been able to kind of grow with us. No, we have an incredible team. And and again, it's a mix of people that have come from the outside. Joe Schluter, who's the head of our fixed operations. He was our first service director at Toyota Tampa Bay. and what can, I'm what I'm seeing and what I think about this business is that, especially if we're on the independent side, um, you know, non-franchise, it seems like while there may be very minimal or no barriers to entry to becoming a dealer, the real barrier to entry is the people. Because it's like you said, especially you're running a very decentralized business, 
these people are not compensated, you know, what they're compensated because of their good looks, right? It's because they're bringing value at the end of the day. Um, and, and so it seems like everything you're saying, it's very, very non-traditional, uh, which is, you know, I guess it's every business, but it's, it's neat to hear it from you because, you know, you've sort of been in the game for so long that you've picked up these gems along the way. And so you've assembled these team of superstars that you just can't do overnight, yeah. right? Like, it's not like you just came out of nowhere and within 12 months, you know, you've assembled this team. I mean, it takes time and I think it's, uh, it's incredible. I, we, we spend six hours a week just interviewing folks, even when we don't have positions mm -hmm. available, yep. just making relationships, kind Going of trying to pipeline. understand the talent yeah. set. Yeah. We're, look, if we hire somebody from the outside to run a Morgan store, we're going to miss three times, three X more with, with somebody from the outside than somebody we grow internally. But I promise you back in 16, when we went from acquiring one store to acquiring six or eight a year, we had to start leaning in from the outside because we outkicked our coverage on our yeah. bench. Now we, we look, we've got a talent bench where, so it's, you know, it's like spinning plates, right? We're, we're developing our talent internally, but we're also kind of, you know, consistently opening up those lines of communication uh, and making relationships with really great people in our business that, that frank, frankly, we think we have a, a differentiated we have something to offer them that the others don't. So we work really hard on our people. It's very time consuming and it's, but it's everything. What do you think about independent stores? You know, I know you guys had independent stores. I think you divested. I mean, is that a space that you mentioned used cars we, all the time, yeah. right? But will you get back into sole independent stores? I don't know. I don't think so. Now, granted, you know, one of those two experiences was a bad location and we were like the fourth to fail there. So I, I don't know if we had some delusions of grandeur or what, um, you know, that's, that's hard because I feel like, you know, the, the typical retail landscape calls you a success or failure based on a 30 day period of business. And I feel like in the independent, like, you know, right now our used car business is not great. It's just, a, it's, you know, we're running 4% margins. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it can only get better. But it's been really tough to navigate. And I think you'll see, you know, the, the quarterly earnings reports, a lot of publics probably haven't had a unique experience from what we've had. But the independent space, man, it's hard. So I would say, first and foremost, you really need to look at how you judge your success on a longer period of time. I'm not saying a monthly financial statement's worthless. I'm just saying, you know, when you're carrying 200 used cars and the books drop a percent and a half and... You know, you had your you know best manager was on a vacation in Tahiti for two weeks, and you've got your record. You know, I mean, look at I mean, look at Carvana. You're in the commodity business. They were ramping up at maybe the worst possible time ever, right? Running right into COVID, and I mean, you're you're kind of a commodity trader, and you don't have that offset. You can, you can have some offset, but you don't have that offset that the traditional, you know, manufactured dealerships have. You know, I think if there's one thing I could tell your listeners, it's that if you look at our revenue, 17% of our revenue is accounted from fixed operations and F&I, right? So service parts, body shop, F&I, only 17% of the dollars we generate comes from those worlds. It's 60% of our gross profit contribution. 60% of your profit contribution is from fixed operations, yet on a from a top and line- And F&I. And F&I. Yeah. But from a top line, it's only 17%. Yeah. So the bottom line here, and I think it's it's the right way to look at it, is that you know margins are just much better on service 
on FNI and margins are much worse on used car, you know, the used car sales themselves, parts and stuff like that. It's your insurance policy. Yep. You know, we say that all the time. And because our, our founder and our co-founder and chairman spent his past life understanding the value of that non-warranty customer, we, we, we tend to do that better than most. And that's, that's a huge part of our insurance policy. There's a lot of things you can't control that factor into new and used car sales, right? Dealership values, consumer sentiment, uh, interest rates, right? And, and those things can confound you in a very quick matter of time. And if they affect the, your consumers, they affect you. And what, you know, what's wild to me is when I got into this business, you know, average cost of sale on a used car was benchmarked at 15 grand. And it was 18 grand. And it was 22 grand. You know, I just told you what our used car margins are, but I think our average, you know, cost of our, excuse me, average retail transaction price in a used car is like $33,000 last quarter. It's incredible how it's risen. And it's pinching the, you know, the consumers, it's pinching the consumer. Yeah, and it's coming down just tiny. I think it's down like 4% year over year or something like that, maybe even less. Yeah. Um, but we're still so, you know, we so underproduced the last couple of years. It's, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine it coming down meaningfully, like, you know, double, double digits are an accelerated time frame. So. Agree. And you'd think that would be good for dealers, but it's still, it's yeah. still a challenge. My friend, um, I think we covered, I think we covered a lot and this was amazing. And I really appreciate you sharing everything and also just getting a chance and opportunity to document your story. I think, I'm not sure how much you've told that story, you know, with you just getting into the business, growing from Tires Plus to the dealership business, but just, you know, really incredible journey you guys have been on and, you know, really happy to, that you came on, man. Um, I want to ask, you know, where can people learn more about you and Morgan Auto Group? I'm pretty visible. I'm, you know, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Um, excuse me, X. Uh, <laughs> Brett AM. Brett AM. So Brett Ashley Morgan, Brett AM TPA, which is Tampa. Um, MorganAutoGroup.com. Yeah, there's, you know, I'm around and I love, I love engaging, you know, with, with industry folks and consumers alike. So, you know, reach out. There it is. Really enjoyed it. Brett, thanks for coming on my brother. All right. Take care. Thank you. Talk to you. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating, consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.